every single time that I give someone good news about their fertility outcome and their baby on the way, it is the most fulfilling moment that many people in their life will never even be able to appreciate what I get to do on a daily basis. And I got a card and flowers today. A patient sent it to me and said, today is the two-year anniversary of you putting my embryo back. And my kid already turned one. And they sent me flowers, cards, and a picture. And a picture of the last day that they were here, we were hugging, and she giving me a, like a gift. And it was just, it just made my day. It made my day. And not that many people get to get things like that all the time. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests, famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Shaheen Gadir. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. So got to kick it off. I assume like the day you're born, you come out and you start directing everyone else in the delivery room on how this is supposed to go, right? Just started from the beginning. Right then and there, I was just telling people how you're supposed to do this and it was a little delay, a little bit of a delay, but picked it up really fast. Well, let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? I was born here in L.A. Uh-huh. at the Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. My parents uh, got married in Iran and moved back to the U.S. because my dad studied here. So they lived on the East Coast. They had moved to the West Coast. And I was born here. Very cool. Born Angelino. It's a rare commodity these days. Yeah, very. So... Tell me more about your parents, your upbringing. Like, what did your parents do? What were they interested in? Like, what was the home life like? So very interesting. My dad came to the U.S. when he was 17 years old, and he started to study in the East Coast. He graduated from George Washington University, moved back to Iran, got married to my mom. They both moved back to the East Coast where they lived in Virginia. And they didn't really love Virginia, so they moved to the West Coast had a better time here. My sister and I were both born here. My dad is very self-made, came from a very modest background. And his mom passed away when he was 17, when he had just moved here. So he was kind of in charge of helping his brother and sister and helping his dad back home. My mom is the youngest of seven siblings, a very different background, a very well-to-do upbringing, and a very affluent, well-known family in Iran. My grandfather was the first person to bring the bar of soap to Iran, and then he led his business into having um, one of the largest cooking oil companies in the Middle East. So kind of very different backgrounds, and they came to the U.S., and uh, after I was born, they decided to move back to Iran. It was very different without cell phones and without all the things we have. They were in a different world. So they moved back to Iran. They were there for about six years, where my parents say it was probably the six best years of their life, Um, and their lives went like this, and then had to leave everything and leave the country and leave every single asset that they had built up so quickly all behind. And then we ended up back here in LA again. So you were born in LA, but moved back to Iran for, you said, six years and then? Yeah. And in 78, we moved back to LA. And that was during the revolution? Correct. Three days after the Shah of Iran left, uh, my sister and my mom, myself, my grandmother went to Tel Aviv to just wait it out until the streets weren't so like full of rioting. Yeah. Uh, we've never been back. Six months later, my dad had to sneak out with a passport that let him get out and left every single thing right then and there with our driver that dropped him off at the airport. Wow. Yeah. And have any of you ever been back? Never. None of us. Wow. 
And so then you, you, so how long did you spend in Tel Aviv then? We were there for six months. My dad had a really hard time getting out of the country. In 1984, the Olympics that were in LA were actually supposed to be in Tehran. And his company was doing all of the electrical work for building the stadium. Got it. So since he worked with the Shah's government, that was a no-no. And we went on some really horrible lists that kept you from getting out of the country. So eventually he had to leave the country with a fake passport. Got it. And then did you go straight back to the US or did you travel around from there? Uh, no, we came from there to London. My dad came and said hi to us for a week, just flew to the US. He was lucky he had his green card from before. My mom had let her green card expire. She was like, I didn't ever want to go back to the US. <laughs> so when we were in London, they weren't giving visas out that easily. And we just got on a plane and she was uh, pretty ballsy. She got on a plane with an expired green card and was not noticed that the airport was just stamped and went right through. And wow. it was, you know, no digital cards in 1978. It was all a little piece of paper and went right through. And she became- When you got to imagine, like, if she had, you know, sort of the hoods, but just go in and hand it to her, like, most customs agents aren't going to, like, go through it in detail. It's Immigration's been a little different these days. But back then, like, that wasn't going to, they probably wouldn't have assumed, like, who's going to get on a plane with an expired green card and try to come through? Because they had one at some point. <laughs> I'm glad she did what she did. So that's when we got here in 78. Yeah. Did you go straight to LA? We went straight to LA. Um, my dad had found an apartment that he was living in in Brentwood. Uh-huh. He's lucky he spoke English well. He was helping a lot of the Persians who didn't and had brought a lot of money and had money abroad uh, buy homes. Oh, wow. Got it. So he became a real estate broker, even though that's not at all what he had ever done. Yeah. And he was, he was saying he's the electrical engineer on the, is what he was? He is a civil and electrical engineer yeah. from his studies. And then when he got here, he started to do a real estate brokerage. At one time, he had like 50 different brokers wow. um, and agents agents that were working with his under his name as his, uh, the broker. And yeah. then he started to just go from real estate, you know, just buying and selling into development little by little. And yeah. that's kind of how he has ended up kind of his career as a real nice. estate developer and owns properties and things now. So you had an entrepreneurial dad that really made it work. I did. And who worked really, really hard. That's awesome. To do everything for his family. And so going through that experience, what were you thinking you wanted to be when you grew up? Like, where was your head at through all this? You know, I always was really good at science and math. Uh-huh. So the idea of being a doctor, I think, was always in my head. Like, from what age do you remember? Like, the first I time? remember. So this is interesting. When I was 13 years old, I was on the the Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, really? Awesome. I was on the Wheel of Fortune Teen Week. I was like the youngest person. I was even waiting the day I turned 13. I went to try out and I made it on the show. And Pat Sajak uh, said that you're a future plastic surgeon. There you go. So I guess I knew I was going to be a doctor then. Yeah. I didn't really realize what kind of doctor, even though I was wrong and I did not want to be a plastic surgeon. Yeah. Um, but I think I always knew that. And then I had a lot of encouragement from parents that were immigrants uh-huh. that lost everything and also realized that, you know, your education and what you can do is going to be the best thing to take with you. Yeah, that makes sense. And and so it was around 13. What Like before that, like when you were like six, seven, were there things you like remember, like, I want to be this when I grow up? Like kind of where was your attention? Yeah, there was a couple of things I really wanted to be. There was a time. I remember my mom asking me a question and I really did not even understand the idea that you're going to study and learn to do things. And the only thing I knew how to do then was like to take a cake mix and mix it with like the water and then make a cake. So I told her, I said, I said to her, I think I'm going to have to be a baker and I'm not going to be that good. <laughs> 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 I remember this really clearly. 
Um, after that, when I realized that you study to learn to do things, I, for a really short bit, I wanted to be a pilot. And then I wanted to be an architect because I thought that was really, really fun. Yeah. And honestly, to this day, I think being an architect is an incredibly cool thing. And if I could do something on the side for fun, it would be something that I love it to do. I really love all aspects of like design of buildings and homes and things like that. And for some weird reason, I find myself to be good at it there you go. with the limited amount of training or anything that I've had, not had actually. But I think it just shifted into being a doctor. It was a very natural progression for me. Uh-huh. And it allowed me kind of to work towards being a, a doctor. Little did I know about the kind of doctor. That didn't happen until much, much later, though. Yeah, we'll get to that. I'm guessing that didn't happen when you were a young kid. No. So through high school, were you actually like, I'm going to go to medical school? Like, was it like you were pretty yeah. focused at that point? All of high school. Yeah, cool. All of high school, I knew I was going to be a doctor. Got it. Awesome. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I did, you know, all my pre-med courses. The one thing I didn't is that I had, when I went to UCLA, I started as a kinesiology major. Uh-huh. And within like a couple of weeks, I'm like, okay, I don't want to do this like this. I want to do something I like. I'm going to have to take all these classes in med school eventually. So I actually changed my major to psychology. Uh-huh. which I really liked. Yeah. And it, I graduated with a psychology major. And I absolutely loved that. It was like one of the best decisions yeah. I think I ever made in my life. Well, one of the biggest things that uh, doctors struggle with is bedside manner. And you now know how people's brains work. <laughs> well, I think, I think I learned a lot. I think naturally, I have some little power of being able to be communicative as well, which has helped me a lot. But I think taking that that was in me and then putting it into an area that I really brought things out and allowed me to notice things um, was actually, I think, for me, a very smart thing. You know, one of the things I actually like to love to bring up to like people who are like, well, I don't know what to do. I'm like, well, why don't you not think about what to do? Why don't you look at yourself? Why don't you look at yourself and see what you're good at? You know, if you're really shy and quiet, don't go become a politician. You know, right. if yep. you're... Really bad at math, you don't become a CPA. So I think it's really important for the younger generation to look at themselves to see what they're good at, what their abilities are that are natural for them, that they can just use natural abilities of theirs. And I think this has just gone on and on in my career because the natural like of human beings and communication skills that I'm so lucky to have has allowed me to do what I do so well and helped me tremendously getting to where I am right now. Yeah, well, I think people can find like professional happiness, when you find that blend of what you're good at that you enjoy doing. A lot of people talk about the pursuing passion thing. And it's like, passions don't have to be careers. You don't have to be like, you don't have to pick your number one passion and make a career out of it. Like if you like, I love snowboarding, I love playing guitar, I'm not that good at either of them. So I'm not going to make it my career because that's going to be a tough career. And it's probably going to ruin my passion for snowboarding or playing guitar. So I've, I've always found that like finding that blend of something you're really good at, along with you enjoy it, like you, you you have to enjoy it. I don't think that it has to be the number one thing you would do with your free time, but you have to enjoy it along the way. I think that's where people really fall into that sweet spot. So that's, I agree. I think that's awesome. And so you do your undergrad at UCLA. How's the medical school process? I've heard a lot of interesting things about that. So how is going, you know, getting into medical school, school, going through the MCATs, that whole process? So that was a nightmare. I want to be beyond honest to everyone. First of all, didn't realize how to study for the MCAT. I didn't realize what you needed to put into it. And I realized I'm not really that amazing at standardized tests. I would take standardized tests always, and I would get 99th percentile in all the math. 
Yeah. And then on everything else, which was the reading comp and everything else, I was like average to like slightly below average. Yeah. And that really affected the MCAT. Uh, I remember getting a very average score on my MCAT. And I remembered applying to USC Medical School and I did not get in. So I picked up the phone, used my social skills, and I asked for the dean of medicine who came on the call and said that it has been shown and we believe that people that do not do very well on their MCATs do not turn out to be very good doctors. That's what he said. God bless this man's soul. He's no longer alive. But one day I had wanted to call him again. Then I heard he had passed away. So I just wanted to give him an update. Um, that I think he's absolutely wrong. And to the point that like it's getting close to the fact that like they may be even getting rid of MCATs, I heard something like that. Yeah, they're looking at all standardized tests because, again, what does a standardized test test for? Your ability to take a standardized test. Exactly. It doesn't tell you anything about how someone is going to be doing in their future. So I had a almost 3.9 at UCLA, but my MCAT scores that were average and maybe applying to some of the higher end of medical schools, I didn't get into any medical school. Got it. And instead of trying to do this whole thing again and again and again, I decided, you know what? I've heard about this international program in Guadalajara, Mexico, and I'm going to apply. And of course, I got in. And then I went down there and I saw it's a nice university. And then they had a program that was only and only for U.S. accredited. I'm sorry, for U.S. students. So um, I moved down there. I got a beautiful apartment that was like a four minute walk from school, brand new building, lived like a king, never in my life imagined. If there was eight units in my building, Seven of them were med students in my year. Cool. They were all my friends. Yeah. For someone who had never been in a fraternity, I think that's as close to a fraternity as I ever got. And it was probably yeah. better than one. And I'm still really good friends with a lot of the people that used to live there with me, which was really fun. But I was a little devastated that I did not get into a med school. And I'm not going to lie because I took med school there very, very seriously. There was 220 people in my class. And I was in the top 5% when many of my friends were exploring Mexico and going to really cool places that I would like to go to today. Uh, <laughs> and I have gone subsequently. They were traveling and having fun. But that allowed me to transfer out of the school there. So I applied, even though they had said it's not allowed to. I, I didn't listen to anyone. And I applied to transfer medical schools. I got five interviews to go for transfer spots. And I remember I was in an airport heading back from one of the interviews. I did all five in a row and I called my home and my mom's, there was no cell phones. I'm wow, this is a long time. And my mom said, you just got accepted to the med school. And I was just dying of happiness. I'm like, which one? And she said, the one in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So I was like, great. <laughs> I'm going from one Latin American area to another, but I didn't care because Puerto Rico has two or three US accredited medical schools that are just like being in UCLA, I really wanted to go to George Washington. Uh, I had also interviewed at New York Medical College and also Chicago Med, but yeah. GW was great. I was on a wait list. Legally, you weren't allowed to stay on a wait list if you accepted a spot. So I took the spot and the next year I moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where I was welcomed by a poof of humidity and heat in my face for the next two years. Got it. And so... Were you still pretty open to what type of medicine? Like, when did you start thinking, like, narrowing your focus? So as I progressed and I started to do all of my clinical rotations, I realized that 
this is I maybe I made a mistake. Like I didn't love being around sick people. And there were some really sick level people that were really ill uh, in Puerto Rico at the community at the county hospital where we were working. And things I'd never seen before that I was like, the little kid from Beverly Hills is now seeing stuff that's like scary. So I'm like, what do I do? I don't want to be around sick people. So I decided to apply for OBGYN. I figured fits my personality. I can chit chat with these healthy women all day long, help them deliver their babies. And luckily for me, I did some rotations. I was allowed to do my last six months of medical school, which I moved all six months to electives here in LA. And I did them all here. And I got into Kaiser Permanente Residency Program right here on Sunset Boulevard in LA, which turned out to be one of the best four years of my life. I loved my residency. I learned so much. And then I would get feedback. I remember I was on my surgery rotation and there was a couple other people that were in my program that were good, but by no means better than me. Yeah. They had all gone to top med schools right around here. And one of the doctors said to me, I just don't understand. And I'll never forget this. And I one day I need to call him and tell him this because it had such an impact on me. He said to me, I don't understand something. I tell you something once, you get it. I never have to repeat it again. You're better than most of your peers. Why didn't you get into a medical school? And I said, I don't know. I think it was my MCAT scores. So that's why if they ever have anything about getting rid of these, and I have a voice, I will be voicing it about MCAT scores. And so like, I get the idea of like you, you found that you weren't necessarily passionate about being around really sick people and you got into medicine. So finding ways for the, you know, sort of more the uh, lighter side of medicine. But how did that turn into gynecologist? It could have been, there's a lot of other options. Yeah, no, there are, there are. But again, I think by then I had realized some of my strengths and benefits that I can bring to this world. And a radiologist doesn't really have to deal with really sick people. But could I envision myself sitting like in the basement of the hospital looking at films all day long? I would have probably killed myself. Yeah. And there are other areas. But then again, there were areas that I just I know myself that I still to this day, like have a, a I could not do anything with oncology. I couldn't do things with like and and then I realized that I did like surgery a lot. But I didn't love it. Like I didn't love standing in the surgery for 10 hours. Yeah. And it's still yeah, true. It. So I decided yeah. that OBGYN would bring a nice mix of everything. You get to do some yeah. great surgeries. You get to be involved with healthier people. Um, you get to have a continuity of care with people that you allow you to have relationships with them. And as you know very well about me, like I love having relationships and having that human contact and learning about people has been really important for me. So that has yeah. been really big for me as well. And I think OBGYN turned out to be excellent. Yeah. Especially at a community-based hospital like Kaiser Permanente, we got to do so much, learn so much, meet so many people. It's busy. It was wonderful. And then I decided to do a rotation. Uh, we all had to do a rotation in fertility, and I liked it. And one of the doctors there, who's very successful here in L.A., invited me to go to his office. And when I went to his office, I absolutely loved it. They had the coolest IVF lab, the surgeries they were doing. I, I just watched and watched in awe of how fun this is. And then I decided this is what I got to do. Not to give a job, but they, it seems, you know, they talk about doctors in general having this God complex, you know, take life, give blah, blah, blah. You're literally responsible for creating life. Like, you are helping people a lot of times that don't think they can create life, figure it out and create that life. So I've got to imagine it's 
fully fulfilling and rewarding, even if you've been doing it a long time. I mean, I think that every single time that I give someone good news about their fertility outcome and their baby on the way, it is the most fulfilling moment that many people in their life will never even be able to appreciate what I get to do on a daily basis. And I got a card and flowers today. A patient sent it to me and said, today is the two-year anniversary of you putting my embryo back. And my kid already turned one. And they sent me flowers, cards, and a picture. And a picture of the last day that they were here, we were hugging. And she giving me a, like a gift. And it was just, it just made my day. It made my day. And not that many people get to get things like that all the time. And, and what's impressive to me is that you were able to have the foresight in medical school. I mean, you started this planning at 13, basically. And you had that foresight to be like, I don't like this. I'm not going to be happy here. I'm going to, you know, control my destiny. And this is something that fits what I like. And you like kept going down that path and made it happen, which is great. And so once you, you know, saw this fertility office, did you immediately start focusing on fertility or like what happened? I did. There? I came back and I went immediately to my program director at Kaiser. And I said, I really like this. I really want to try to do this. And he said to me, there's only been like two people in the history of Kaiser Permanente residency program that ever went off to fellowship. So we started to make some calls. I arranged for like a two-week rotation at USC. What does that mean? Does that mean that most people don't go that deep into No, they don't. Because most of the doctors that graduate, that means 99% other than three people that I know of who have graduated from Kaiser Permanente do not do a subspecialty and they stay as generalized OBGYNs. And a lot of them actually continue to stay at Kaiser. Yeah, got it. Makes sense. So I did two weeks at USC. There were like these unofficial programs that they allowed me and my program to do. And I did two weeks at UCLA. I really liked both programs. And I decided to apply and put UCLA number one. And I put USC number two. And I was beyond lucky to get the UCLA spot. The UCLA spot covered covered both UCLA Medical Center reproductive in the infertility department and cedars so the year before me there were two fellows they would like split and then the year after me there was two and my year was just me so i was everywhere all the time for three years but it was it was a lot of fun and during that period so when do you start earning a living doing this stuff because i know medical like getting into debt so during residency you earn a living okay i think it started off as like twenty eight thousand a year um, that's and every year it went up. And since I went to the year seven of postgraduate training, <laughs> by then I was like in the fifties, but many people. And at that point, like we would do moonlighting. So I would work overnight, yeah. you know, during fellowship, I didn't have to run and do delivery. So I could, you know, do some extra work at night and I would work a lot at the other Kaiser on uh, the West LA Kaiser on La Cienega, which I had a great group of people that I would go there. I would do deliveries overnight and then in the morning go to my job. Oh, wow. So you were actually helping deliver babies and then going to your job to train. Yeah, I would be I would be overnight delivering babies. I was a doctor on call in the hospital and then I would go back to fellowship program in the morning. Okay, so you're so at what point are you considered a doctor? Is it before rotation? Like legally? You're a doctor once you finish medical school. You are. Okay. Got it. Yes. So when you become a resident and you walk into the hospital as a brand new little intern, yeah. you are a doctor and they all call you doctor. Got it. Okay. Awesome. So, I mean, getting reps in, so to speak, and delivering babies while continuing to train to get this focus on fertility. That's great. Yep. And so once you get done with uh, that piece of it, the fellowship, what happened next? Did you immediately go out to start your own practice? Like, So we're 
really lucky because the fellowship pro- uh, program at both UCLA and Cedars, and by the way, subsequently now they're two separate programs. Got it. So they have a fellow and they have separate fellows. But the programs um, actually rotate. That means they send their res- their fellows here in my office where I work right now. So for six months, I worked in this office as a fellow. Got it. And during that time, the partners pulled me aside and said, we, we would love for you to join us when you're done. I really like the idea. And I actually spoke to many different places locally that all had positions available. There was only myself and the girl graduating from USC. And she told me and called me and said, I'm going to San Francisco. So LA is all yours. We'll do whatever you want. I was very lucky. I interviewed everywhere. And I decided that this place that I knew the best was the best fit for me. Awesome. So I joined Southern California Reproductive Center. And after a one-month break that I had never had yeah. for many, 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 many years, in July or end of July, August of 2006, I started to work here. Nice. And through that, you've built, I mean, with them, you, you've built this massive, you know, like one of the top fertility clinics in the world where people from internationally over the world are coming into how was that building that out? Like actually like the business side of it, you've built this like fertility side, but then at some point it becomes a business too, where you're building, you've got a lot to manage. You've got other doctors you're bringing in. You've got a whole staff. Like how is the balancing of that? So I have two senior partners that actually started the practice. Yeah. When I came on board, I started to add satellite offices. I started to add different locations that they had never even had. And the business started to grow very rapidly. Yeah. We were able to change some of our leadership uh, internally and align ourselves uh, with that leadership. And with my CEO, we started to expand internationally. I had 12 trips to China alone, multiple to Europe for different conferences. And during those trips to Asia, we would meet with clientele and potential patients, bring them here. At one time, I think we had over 10 international coordinators working here. Wow. Sadly, when the pandemic hit, it went down to zero international patients from Asia. But now we're building up again. It's nowhere where it used to be at all. Yeah. But we're continuing to grow again in that division. Uh, it was quite a juggling act. I mean, seeing ourselves grow and grow and keeping our quality and everything we could to keep it still as like the best fertility center that we knew how has always allowed us to really be accomplished and achieve goals that many clinics in town have not. Yep. And so a couple of last questions for you. Number one, what's next? What's the future hold? It's a really good question. I think that the world of fertility is ready for some upgrades. I think that we are still practicing old school medicine in a world where young women who need to freeze eggs and are being very proactive about their lives, and also people that are still struggling need a, a newer version of healthcare as a woman. So the area of femtech and the area of kind of optimizing and automating and bringing science to our field, I think is going to be next. And I'm very excited and hopefully can be a part of that. So we'd love to see it grow in ways that kind of offer fertility services to many, many more people than we have in the past. And so last question for you, you obviously, I mean, the commitment and grit that you had to stick this out again, you've had this vision of 13 and then you went through, you know, undergrad and then not getting into schools and then getting into moving to Mexico and then going to Puerto Rico and then going to Kaiser and like all the things you did to get to this point and picking this uh, practice and then helping them grow it and really rolling up your sleeves. What would be your advice to someone that wants to pursue their dreams 
something you either wish you were told or something that you were told that really helped you go along the way? You know, that's a really good question. So I think being a child of immigrant parents to the United States, the idea of being a doctor and a lawyer is not what I would ever push on to anyone. (laughs) There are many, many options out there. Healthcare and medicine has changed significantly. So I would say not to limit yourself to anything at all, first of all. With that being said, I would say if you still really want to be a physician, you can do amazingly well and you have to be persistent. So there's a couple key things that have allowed me to achieve in many areas of my life. One is really hard work. One is persistence. One is being goal-oriented. I have to say that I think a lot of where I am right now had to do with my personality and being a people person. And I think you have to understand that just having one side of that without the other side, the human side, really holds people back. Yeah. So having a nice mixture of traits that allow you to succeed in this world and putting your best foot forward in all of those areas, I think would be the very smart thing to do. But it's a very, very challenging time for people to become professionals and to grow and for young kids to decide what to do. I'm not jealous of those kids trying to figure that out now, but there are so many areas of where you can go to do things that are unique and incredible. And if you can be smart and thoughtful in those areas, I think you could be successful in anything you do. Amen. Well, Shaheen, this has been amazing. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Eric, thank you so much for having me. Of course. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.